and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 73. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's Q&A episode, we just want to remind you that if you do enjoy these podcasts, you know, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them. Take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians. And if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, which you can also find in the show notes below or in any of our Instagram bios. So Jack, 73, episode 73, damn. Oh, not too far off 100, which is pretty cool. (laughs) Yep, about three quarters of the way. Yes, that is right. But you know, let's get cracking. So first question of the day, Jack. This one says, should I be worried about mercury in seafood? Is it safe to eat a can of tuna each day? Okay, so this is definitely a question that I'm sure many of the listeners would like to know. And because in reality, a lot of people do consume fish and a lot of people are concerned about the mercury content as well. So we did look this up to give you guys a very concise answer. And we went to Fazans, which is the food standards of Australia and New Zealand. They're basically the organization that take care of like food recalls if they find that particular foods aren't safe to eat or mm-hmm. they basically allow certain foods to be on the market basically. Yeah, exactly. They pretty much regulate what we're allowed to eat here mm. in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. So basically what they've said, this is for the healthy population, not for uh, mothers who are pregnant, etc. But essentially it's two to three serves of fish per week. They recommend one serve of fish is 150 grams. And an uh, interesting fact that they also mention is that the tin tuna that people usually eat is actually lower in mercury than things like tuna steaks because fish used in tin tuna are usually younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they did also say that uh, only consume like one serve per week of shark or swordfish uh, because those, those fish are much higher in mercury. Yeah, so guys, the thing about mercury is that it naturally accumulates in the environment. And in the aquatic food chain, it will accumulate as methylmercury. And every single fish will have some degree of mercury in it. But the thing is, is it's about the food chain, right? So the smaller fish are going to have much, much less methylmercury in them compared to fish that are way up on the food chain. So that's why if you go out to the beach and you catch your own, you know, little whiting or something, right? Uh, That's gonna have very low levels of mercury in it compared to something like a swordfish or a shark who's been alive for many years. And think about the size of the fish, right? And also its age. So if a fish is larger, one, it has to eat more to grow to that size. And if a fish is older, right? It's been alive for longer, eating more fish that have mercury in them. So that's why it accumulates in larger organisms. But yeah, methylmercury, it's going to be in every single fish. But the thing is that mercury, so unfortunately we actually can't cook the mercury out of food. So no matter how much you, you know, you cook your, uh, your tuna filet or something, right? You can't actually cook it out of food. And interestingly enough is that uh, mercury, it only accumulates in the flesh of fish. So it doesn't actually accumulate in necessarily fish oil. So fish oil tablets will have minuscule to pretty much no mercury 
mercury in them. So right now there's no, there's no necessarily limit on the amount of fish oil capsules that you can consume. So you don't need to be mercury, uh, concerned about mercury in that sense. But you know, years ago I used to eat a can of tuna every single day. I probably went like up maybe a a year or a year and a half actually eating a can of tuna mm. every single day. And this those is were certainly bigger cans as well. Yeah. I have, yeah, I got a big appetite. I'm not into well, this. No, what I'm saying <laughs> is that you were probably over the recommendation. Yeah, potentially, you know, and this is something that, you know, people would ask me as well. And I was always like, I would question it. This is back when I was in high school, like grade 10 and 11, I did a eat, eat one of those medium sized cans every single day, but I would question it. But for some reason it never actually stopped me from eating more. Mm. Mm. Well, that's because you're stubborn. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> hey, I'm still alive today. I'd be interested to test my mercury levels. But yeah, it um, it certainly is something to keep but, in mind. Yeah. For people who are consuming tinned fish every day, again, of course, it depends on the, the size of the tin. But if a server fish is 150 and they recommend two to three serves a week, that's 450 grams in a week. So mm. uh, I, don't, I think the John West, I looked this up, the John West like small tins are around 90 grams. So like Mm -hmm. if you have that every day, that's going to be over the recommended amount. Yeah. So nine times seven, that is 63. So 630 grams of fish per week. And, uh, yeah, that, that would certainly be slightly over the recommended Mm. amount, but yeah, especially since like, if I was to have tuna in a meal, I would have two tins, not one. Because yeah. one tin would oh, be enough. 90 grams is tiny, you yeah. know? Like the medium-sized cans, I'm pretty sure they're closer to like, they're 180 pretty much. Mm. and Because that's closer to 30 grams of protein. Those tiny little cans, they only have like 15 or 16 grams of protein, pretty sure. And if you're getting the flavored ones, that that's even less. Because the yeah. majority of, the more of the weight is made up from things like oils and the spices. Yeah. So I guess that's it, right guys? So two to three serves of fish per week. A serving is 150 grams. You can either have that or you can have one serve of, you know, something like swordfish or shark or billfish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the main populations that are at risk of mercury are pregnant women or women who are looking to get pregnant or like basically very, very young children. But yeah, hopefully that helps to answer your question. And uh, they did make a really good point, you know, on Fazans that the benefits of eating fish, because fish is such a remarkably nutritious food, right? Providing plenty of great quality protein, omega-3 fatty acids, you know, trace minerals, certain vitamins. The benefits of eating fish far outweigh any negative health consequences. So we strongly encourage that you do meet those recommendations of consuming around two serves of oily fish per week. Yeah. So. Sweet. All right. So we shall move on to this next question. So this next question says, are pre-workouts necessary? No, but it's kind of like a a double-edged sword, Mm -hmm. if if that's a saying. Like it's also kind of like saying is is protein powder necessary? Of course Mm -hmm. it's not necessary, but it's it's very helpful. Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of what we would say for pre-workout as well. It's, it's, uh, like, cause pre-workout's a very generic term too. So like pre-workout could be just caffeine, like a, a no-dose caffeine mm-hmm. pill, or it could be some fancy pre-workout. So definitely the benefits you get from more so caffeine than anything else is going to be beneficial for your workout. So why, unless you're sensitive to caffeine or you have reasons why you don't want to take it, 
then why not use it and reap the benefits? Yeah, exactly. So when you're looking at something like a pre-workout supplement, the first thing is no, it's certainly not necessary. You don't really need anything necessarily to get you into the gym and lifting weights. But there's no doubt that there are some evidence-based ergogenic aids out there. And ergogenic aid essentially means performance enhancing supplement, which uh, can significantly increase your performance. And you know, the A-listed supplements that are commonly in pre-workouts are things like caffeine, creatine, beta alanine, perhaps some nitrates, right? Uh, so these are those A-listed supplements, but at the same time, you want to make sure that they're in the correct dosages. So for example, caffeine, right? You want to make sure that your pre-workout one, it's not just a proprietary blend, which means that they give you the ingredient list there, if they're nice enough to give you the ingredient list, but they also give you the dosages, you know, uh, in one serving. They don't just say, hey, this has got some caffeine in it. They actually tell you how many milligrams per serving. So. For caffeine, you wanna be consuming three to six milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight around one hour before your workout. Creatine is three to five grams every single day. You know, beta alanine, anywhere between probably like two to six uh, grams of beta alanine, which is a lot of beta alanine. And the mm. thing about beta alanine is that, you know, you get those ergogenic effects from actually one supplementing closer to that six gram mark, but you want to be supplementing it every single day for between like four to six weeks. And usually people break that dosage up. Otherwise they suffer from that paresthesia. Is that the way, right word? Paresthesia. Paresthesia. Um, it's kind of like, you know, it's that tingly feeling you get when you have beta alanine and different people feel it in different places. Like, where do you feel it? <laughs> I feel it anywhere. I feel yeah. it anywhere and everywhere. I'm just tingling. I feel it like in my lips, in my ears, in my fingertips. Like I don't get it usually from, uh, I only get it in when I actually dose enough. Like mm -hmm. I don't, because I don't take uh, beta alanine as a supplement really. Mm -hmm. I just, it's just in the pre-workout, but it's not dosed enough. Yeah. So, but when I do take it properly, mm -hmm. like I had that incident in Sydney where I took a very high dosage of beta alanine. Oh boy, Jack had this like <laughs> freaking incredible pre-workout. Like it was, <laughs> but you also took it on a fasted stomach. Yeah. Jesus. And oh. hot as well. Oh boy. I remember walking to the gym and Jack's like, Tierra, <laughs> I've never felt like this before in my life. But yeah, guys, that's the main thing. It's, it's certainly not necessary, but there's no doubt that certain ergogenic aids certainly can help to benefit your performance. Mm. So, but yeah, the thing with most, uh, I would say generic pre-workouts on the market right now is that let's say you do weigh like hundred or 90 kilos and you need to get that dosage of beta alanine in order to get that dosage in the pre-workout that you'd then need to consume like 500 milligrams of caffeine mm -hmm. because that's, you would then, because you can't obviously take the beta alanine out of the pre-workout. So if you really wanted to, because like, I mean, we both consume pre-workout for caffeine. We don't really consume mm -hmm. it for anything else. But if you wanted to consume like the nitrates, beta alanine, caffeine, then it's probably better to buy it all separately. Yeah. Unless you get a really good pre-workout that actually doses effectively. Yeah, that is such a good point, you know, because all of these things, they are in crazy different dosages. Obviously, caffeine is in milligrams, beta alanine, creatine, you know, that's in grams, mm. right? Um, nitrates as well. So you need around like 500 milligrams of 
nitrates. So yeah, either you're going to have this pre-workout with this big ass scoop, right? And that's the thing as well. I've always thought about this too. You know, the more ingredients that they're adding to it, no matter how well they blend it, when you take a scoop of pre-workout, how do you know that you're getting that perfect, you know, ratio of caffeine to beta alanine, you know, to creatine kind of thing. Like you don't actually know. So yeah, I would personally recommend maybe just, how do you know when you scoop up your protein, you're not, you're getting all the amino acids. Oh dude, but protein's a little bit different. It's basically just protein and a little bit of sweetener, you know, but but like pre-workouts are a whole different story. So yeah, it might be beneficial if you really want it to be absolutely spot on, you know, for caffeine, actually getting some like Nodos pills, or VPA, I use like this pre-pump capsule, which has 100 milligrams of caffeine each capsule. And then we supplement with creatine separately as well, just like around five grams every single day. We don't take beta alanine. You know, I've taken uh, nitrates before through beetroot juice powder, but like for that, you need again, 25 grams of powder. So yeah. I don't know. That's probably the best. If you want the best performance enhancing things, one, go for A-listed supplements and just look up the A-listed supplements on the Australian Institute of Sport and uh, also consider, yeah, maybe just supplementing with them separately. And if you are competing naturally, make sure you check the substances before you Mm -hmm. consume them. Yeah, that's, that's another thing as well. Make sure that they are safe with WADA, which is, you know, the world anti-doping agency. And uh, usually you're looking for this little symbol on your supplement package that is either informed sport or HASTA, which means that it has been tested by a third party to ensure that there's no illegal substances, you know, or banned substances in that product. So yeah, that's another thing, but Hopefully that uh, hopefully that's a pretty compre- comprehensive answer. <laughs> yeah, let's move on. Sweet. So this next question says, is it a poor idea to eat high volume foods even deep into the off season? I noticed Tierra does and I also do the same and have a pretty high appetite, but I know some people say it's a poor idea. So yeah, when it comes to this question, I just want to remind you that what you choose to eat and how you choose to eat it and how much you choose to eat It is completely your choice and you can do whatever the heck you want. Just like I do whatever whatever the heck I want, you know, like I eat what I like to eat and I eat however much I like to eat, you know, and yeah, I, I certainly know that. So that's the thing we talk about. There's certainly strategies when it comes to manipulating food volume, depending on which phase you're in. But at the same time, you know, there's strategies and they can apply to certain people, but they won't always apply to other people. Right. And I know personally, I love to eat. I love high volume foods and it doesn't bother me at all, you know, and I feel like I've just grown up my whole life eating high volume foods. So I'm certainly very accustomed to it. You know, I was like that nine-year-old girl at swim meets who legit before my races, I would eat like an entire 500 gram packet of white pasta with like That's not high volume. salt on it. 500 grams of cooked no, it's, pasta. No, it's a high volume, but it's still very energy dense. As a nine-year-old kid, that's a lot. I would, I'd be that girl who was like eating like an entire pizza at school. You know, I'd have the four slices at morning tea and the four yes, slices at lunch. I don't think that's what the question is asking. <laughs> I think it means high volume, low calorie yeah, foods. I know, but I just, I'm just taking this as a time to justify myself and just saying that personally, I've just been accustomed to it my whole life. I've eaten a lot of food my whole life and I really enjoy it and it doesn't make me feel sick. And also I know potentially it would 
that's the thing. It might be a better strategy to utilize lower volume, higher energy dense foods in your improvement season, right? When total caloric intake is higher so that one, some people just feel full really easily. That's why you need to eat more calorically dense foods. But then when you transition into a dieting period, you've got a few tricks up your sleeve, you know, so you can swap your white rice for some potatoes or some pumpkin. So you feel like you're eating more to really just manage your hunger levels. But at the same time, if it doesn't bother you either way, so for example, if you want to eat pumpkin in your improvement season and you want to eat pumpkin while you're dieting, like each to your own, that's that's your choice. But just don't necessarily complain about it, you know, kind, kind of thing. What What's your take on this? Because I know we both have very different opinions and we both eat very differently when it comes to this. Well, I don't, yeah, my opinion's not that different. Like, I would say, first of all, that it's it's difficult not to eat any high volume foods even in the peak of your off season because at the end of the day your fruit and vegetable recommendations they're all high volume foods Mm -hmm. so unless you eat starchy veg for your veg intake but like any most fruits most veggies like even i still have my whole dinner is basically high volume because that's when i get in all my vegetables so yeah jack's eating out of this like massive stir fry dish (laughs) yeah and that's yeah that's the first thing i would say so you can't eliminate high volume completely and the yeah the second part is like you do mention the off season so i assume you are a competitor so i would the only thing i would relate it to is like energy availability and if you're eating high volume foods with a high energy availability i would just be a bit surprised that you're especially in the depths of your off season that your hunger your appetite isn't regulated enough to say okay, I, I want some more energy dense foods, mm-hmm. but that, again, that just might be me thinking because I'm on, I'm the opposite of high volume at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Each to their own, you know, do what you want. <laughs> yeah. But I would just reinforce what Tierra said. If you do go into prep and then the de- if you're eating pumpkin in your off season and then where do you go from pumpkin? <laughs> you like, just you eat in less pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but I, to be fair to Tierra, she, although she does eat high volume foods in her off season, like she, she handled managed hunger um, better than anyone I've seen in prep and her mood. So. Wow, thank you very much. <laughs> you just do what you got to do, you know, just suck it up and eat what you got to eat. But Which yeah. is why I don't tell Tierra stopped eating high volume. In <laughs> I'm just a total foodie, man. I love food. But I, I think at the same time, you know, high volume, you can certainly take it to the next level. So I, I would say I don't take it to the next next level so for example like i might have like a big salad right or i might have like a big vegetable stir fry but during the improvement season i'm certainly not you know eating a whole bunch of like konjac noodles you know and those like zero calorie noodles and things like that or like constantly making myself like massive just like iced coffees and things you know just like those really high volume kind of things like that Uh, and I'm certainly not like chewing on vegetable sticks all throughout the day, but I don't know, eating is very pleasurable and I've always enjoyed it, you know, and if I've got a certain amount of calories, I'm going to, you know, use that to my advantage so I can eat for a little bit longer. And yeah, that's just me. That's the way that I like to eat. I, uh, I love food and again, I'm accustomed to it. So if I'm eating a higher volume of food, you know, I actually enjoy that. I I like feeling satiated during my workouts and having some more in my stomach because there's absolutely nothing worse than feeling hungry 
during a workout. But Jack, I also think it's relative to someone's total caloric intake. So obviously you're a little bit outside the norm because you're consuming closer at like 5,000 calorie mark, right? So that's that's when you're getting to extremes. That is a lot of food. You know, you certainly can't eat 5,000 calories worth of pumpkin. Like <laughs> that would be a YouTube food challenge. <laughs> but if there's someone, you know, consuming closer to like the 2,000 calorie mark, like it's your but that's choice. That's why I related it to energy availability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. if you have a high energy availability, still consuming whole, um, whole foods, then Mm-hmm. No, and when I was saying it's bad, I would just say it, as a competitor, I'm, I would just be surprised. But I'm not saying it's bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's just again, it's each to their own. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do what you want, eat what you want. Yeah, it's, how, it's, how if you anything, want. it's healthier for you. So like, I don't, yeah. I'm not complaining. Yeah, <laughs> generally higher. If you're eating higher volume foods, it would usually indicate that you are eating more nutritious options. Mm-hmm. Unless again, you're just utilizing your calories from things like conjac noodles you know you're having like 10 diet sodas a day that sort of thing you know eating like a hell a lot of halo top and i don't know you know all of these little things that uh can add to cool anyway let's move on (laughs) this next question says how do you know if you have an intolerance to high fat foods Ooh. so the thing with this is that in most cases you might actually be able to see the intolerance. <laughs> so Jack, what's that, what's that called? So it's called steatorrhea and it sounds like diarrhea because it kind of is, but it's basically emitting like whole fat from your, in your stools. Yeah, exactly. So in this case, it is that pretty much you are having issues with your digestion and the absorption of fat in the small intestine. So sometimes this can come from, you know, your pancreas not producing sufficient amounts of lipase, which is the enzyme that helps to break down triglycerides into fatty acids so that they can be absorbed. There could also be potentially issues with the liver or the gallbladder because that's where you produce bile, which is, you know, released down into the small intestine as well and helps to emulsify fats so there could be issues potentially with someone's liver or their pancreas that's influencing the actual digestion and absorption of that fat and as a result you don't absorb it and it moves into your large intestine and then it moves into the toilet and you have a lot of fat in your stool so steatorrhea yeah it's quite a yeah simple answer really Mm -hmm. in terms of how do you know if you have an intolerance yeah And if you do have an intolerance like that, then you really do need to get that checked out for sure. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, yeah, you can't, even from a simple standpoint of not being able to absorb fat-soluble vitamins, mm-hmm. things like that. So. Yeah, so it, it's certainly an issue. But the only other thing that I can think is that, you know, a sign that you're not necessarily tolerating very high amounts of fatty food is that, you know, when we do consume a lot of high fat food in the stomach, it actually can cause the lower esophageal sphincter to relax. And that can actually lead to, you know, more stomach acid, you know, going back up into the esophagus and it's called reflux. So Potentially, you know, if you're eating really, really high amounts of just really oily fried food, you know, or a large volume of really fatty food, you could potentially have reflux, but that just might be more related to the total amount of food that you just ate and the total amount of pressure that you're trying to put on your stomach. But other than that, you know, if you are having issues and it's consistent, I would certainly, you know, recommend seeing your GP and yeah, going and seeing a doctor and trying to get 
things checked out because especially or a dietitian. Yeah. Well, or a dietitian, but especially, you know, if it's something like steatorrhea, you know, that could be a sign of another underlying issue, you know, something that could be wrong with your pancreas or your liver, gallbladder, all that stuff. So, yeah, uh it certainly isn't pleasant, but hopefully it gets fixed if this is an issue that you're dealing with. All right, Jack, let's move on. So this next question says do you guys calculate your sugar intake? No, pretty much no. I don't I don't pay attention to the total amount of sugar I consume. I just pay attention to the total amount of carbohydrates I consume. What yeah. about you? Likewise, yeah, I don't worry about it. Yeah, but interestingly enough, you know, uh, when we did read this question previously, we were interested to see, okay, what is my fitness pal actually, you know, calculating our total sugar intake to be? And what was yours, Jack? So mine yesterday was 200 grams. 200 grams. And as a, how many carbohydrates did you consume yesterday? Uh, six, seven, five. Okay. Yeah. So it's about just what, just under a third? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And mine was because I consumed 375 grams per day. Uh, my total sugar intake was 165 grams apparently. Mm. Yeah. So but, in proportion, you're consuming quite a bit more. Yeah, exactly. But we're certainly consuming it from different sources because, well, I know that right now I'm just consuming a hell of a lot of fruit. So I'm eating between like 10 to 12 pieces of fruit every single day, you know, on top of the sugars that are just like in things like vegetables, things are in like passata. And you know, guys, there's still sugars that the, think about the word sugar, you know, like all carbohydrates in the body, they are broken down to sugar. So that's, that's the thing. That's why we just basically pay attention to total carbohydrate intake, but also just being mindful of where your sugar sources are coming from. So I would certainly be concerned if someone, you know, if they, their total carb intake, let's say was 300 grams per day and 200 grams of that was from sugar. And I knew that they were getting that 200 grams from just drinking soda pop. Then mm. I, that would be a bit of a red flag. Like, Hey, hold up. <laughs> we need to talk. But you know, if you are getting your sugars from still wholesome, nutritious foods like plants, no worries, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no concern. And yeah, that's basically why we don't really pay attention because mm -hmm. we're covering our bases with, yeah, like Tierra said, we're not like one of my meals isn't exactly a bowl of ice cream because that would mm -hmm. be an issue. It's going to be, it, sure, one of my meals does have ice cream, but it also has a bunch of oats, wholemeal flour, like either chicken or protein powder and mm -hmm. yeah. yes because chicken and protein powder are great sources of sugar <laughs> yeah but i'm saying it covers the other bases i'm just Olive playing oil as well <laughs> this dietitian ain't doesn't know his macros <laughs> um yeah so hopefully that answers your question it's basically yeah just look at the nutritional value of your sources of food whether or not they're coming from carbohydrates they're coming from protein or they're coming from fat you know obviously macronutrients matter but the micronutrients that come along with those foods sure as hell matter too yeah cool so this next one says two rest days in a row and then five training days what's your opinion so i would say for most people like if you have the ability to split up your rest days, I would. But if your schedule means that it would be very difficult to do so. For example, if you work um, during the week and then on the weekend you need to spend time with your family, if you have young children, etc., then that's completely understandable. But for most people, I would try and split it up 
And assuming you're not doing a bro split where you're training a different body part each day, like you could, probably could do like four or five days in a row of that because it's different muscle groups. But say if you're doing like upper lower and then the next day would be probably a push or a pull, you're, you're only giving yourself like one day of rest um, and that's the leg day. And the leg day, you're still working your, your back as well, especially of doing things like squats or deadlifts or RDLs. Mm-hmm. So it just doesn't really make much sense. Yeah, so obviously it's not necessarily optimal, you know, in terms of a recovery standpoint, but at the same time, it's not the end of the world. No, it's not. So if you do have to train five days in a row, then just be strategic with, you know, which body parts you are training each day, also the volume that you are doing in each training session so that it, you know, really helps with your recovery from day to day and it doesn't impede your performance during those following sessions. But if you can, you know, Jack and I right now, you know, we do two days on, one day rest, three days on, one day rest. So we train five days a week, you know, but we're still taking those two rest days and we're just strategic with our training program, you know, to ensure that we are recovering day to day, session to session. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully that helps with the answer. So moving on, this next one says, when you do a mini cut, what should you do after? Should you go directly to maintaining or should you reverse diet? So mini cuts are a very specialized form of dieting and they're diff- obviously quite different to like prolonged phases of dieting, like a comp prep or even like someone in the general population would not be doing a mini cut mm-hmm. uh, unless like eh, someone who is overweight or obese, like they would do something similar. Like it's a very low energy diet. They would lose a lot of weight in a short period, but it's not the same as a mini cut, mm-hmm. which is quite specific for someone who's a physique athlete, for example. So the answer to this question is that you would get straight back into a surplus because a mini cut is so aggressive and it's purely for the purpose of removing body fat. So you can be more progressive in terms of your weight gain to gain more muscle. So it's, it's not really to look better it's not really sometimes it can be to perform better or sleep better or eat better but most of the time you'll be getting straight back into a surplus because again the whole point of a mini cut is to lose body fat as quickly as possible to to avoid wasting time however there will be some exceptions to this like for example i'll be mini cutting probably in august and then i'll actually be going to maintenance until october purely because I'll be doing a prep in October and I don't really want to gain any weight. Like I might gain a kilo in order to try and maximize my metabolic rate and uh, increase my energy availability as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And sometimes gaining body weight will be beneficial in doing that. Uh, But I'll pretty much be maintenance most of the time. Yeah, I think that is such a good answer, you know, and the recommendations are that you don't want to do mini cuts any more frequently than a one to four ratio of cutting to massing. So in a one year time frame, right, of your improvement season, you wouldn't want to be doing mini cuts any more frequently than every four months, I would say. And, you know, mini cuts, they're short and sweet. You get in, you get out. They're usually between like four to six weeks, you know, you are quite aggressive with your caloric drop and you're aiming to lose 
closer to that 1.5% of body weight per week. But the thing is that they're unique because generally you are in a position where you are at a higher body fat percentage. So you can afford to drop calories much lower, you know, be more aggressive with your diet and drop some body fat, right? While maintaining muscle mass, generally maintaining training performance. A lot of people even actually benefit, you know, in terms of having a little bit less weight on them, they actually find that they move better in the Mm. gym and sometimes their performance improves cardiovascular fitness might improve so yeah, yeah the only th- the only other thing i'll add is once you finish the mini cut you won't be bringing your calories back to where they were before because adaptive thermogenesis you'll have adapted to a lower amount of food especially combined with being a lower body weight expending less energy through that as well mm-hmm. so you wouldn't you would perhaps bring it up by 500 to 600 to start Mm -hmm. and see how you go. Yeah, but this isn't necessarily to say that you can't do a mini cut and then you can't maintain, right? Like each to their own. Again, you can do what you like, but generally mini cuts are very specific to physique athletes in their improvement season. Uh, And generally, you know, someone would probably do a longer dieting phase, maybe anywhere between eight to 12 weeks, and then look to maintain their new body weight and still push for body recomposition. But every person's going to be different. You know, it really just depends on how, what your goals are and whatever phase you're in, what you're really trying to achieve. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like it is interesting to look at it in a different way, because if I was not a bodybuilder, and I wanted to lose weight, then with my mindset currently and how I work, I would prefer to just do a mini cut mm-hmm. and lose it very quickly and then maintain my body weight. Yeah, exactly. But you need to be a special kind of person for that. And again, some people, they say these things, they're like, you know, I want to lose uh, 10 kilograms in five weeks or something, right? They, But they don't actually understand or they can't comprehend how difficult that's actually going to be. Mm. And uh, it really depends on, you know, where is your energy of availability before you start your mini yeah. cut where are your macros like if at I wasn't, if i wasn't um a bodybuilder my my ea wouldn't be as high as it is now so it would be a lot tougher yeah so. exactly so for people in the general population it's probably a hell of a lot more appropriate to just enter a slight caloric surplus take your time you know don't be so aggressive with it because that's majorly going to increase adherence and sustainability and Otherwise, you know, if someone has to, you know, absolutely have the amount of food that they're eating and they have to weigh up their energy expenditure just because they have this goal fixated in their mind, they're like, I have to lose this amount of weight in six weeks, right? Uh, They, unfortunately, they might not succeed. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Keep that in mind too. they'll just rebound afterwards. They'll end up being 12 kilos heavier. Exactly. So, so many things to consider, especially working with a client as a coach. So many different things to consider before you listen to someone's goal and just roll with it, you know? Think it through. Okay, last question of the day. So this one is aimed specifically at Jack, and it says... You explain how to put on lean muscle in a bulking phase. You really only need to be in a slight caloric surplus of around 150 to 300 calories per day. But in another one of your podcasts, you were talking about how Jack eats around 800 grams of carbs per day, which in itself is already 3,200 calories without the other macros. Why is Jack eating in such a massive caloric surplus versus just trying to eat in a slight or moderate one to put on as much lean muscle as possible while minimizing fat gain? 
Jack, so why <laughs> are you in a 3,200 caloric surplus, man? What you doing? What you trying to do? <laughs> so the short answer to this is basically I'm not in as much of a surplus as you think I am. I just need quite a lot of food in order to gain weight. And essentially, I'm following the guidelines of 1% to 1.5% of my body weight weight gain each month. So for me at the moment, that's anywhere from like 0.9 to 1.4 kilos. Mm -hmm. So why are you eating so much food then? (laughs) Just genetics, bro. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the thing, guys. So just because someone's eating a lot of calories doesn't mean that they are in a significant surplus necessarily. It might just mean that they need a lot of calories to maintain their body weight and their body composition and you know uh with in conjunction with their activity and their energy expenditure and then they just need a little bit more to be in a surplus Mm. plus like i do i usually i'm not that active like i usually probably end up with around eight to ten thousand steps a day and but i do train for a long time i usually you train like a freaking beast okay (laughs) you are not just burning 150 or 300 calories during your training sessions like man we're we're at home now we're in isolation we train hard we love training we're usually in the gym for at least three hours you know and yes we chit chat but like we're not just chit chatting we're (laughs) lifting heavy weights so we're burning the kilocals yeah and Because I have had periods where I haven't trained, well, mainly one period uh, when I had my back injury and I took a full month of training and my energy availability probably diminished by like a thousand in that period. Mm -hmm. I was probably eating a thousand calories less. So that goes to show that like, obviously you need extra fuel to recover and to build muscle, but it's not as much as people think anyway. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it will more so come from your expenditure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hopefully that does answer your question. Jack just needs a hell of a lot of food to be Jack. (laughs) To maintain Jack and to grow Jack. (laughs) But I don't think people touch on Tierra enough. She needs a lot of food as well for a a woman. Yeah, we did what we calculated my energy availability the other day. It was around 50, right? Mm -hmm. Or something. Yeah. Yeah, so 50 calories per kilogram of body weight. Lean body mass. Yeah, of lean body mass. Uh, and you know, the recommendations are that you're at least at 40 calories per kilogram of lean body mass before you start a competition prep. So Mm. yeah, but you know, I'm not going to deny that I am a very active person. Generally, that's why I do require, you know, more calories. Like I go on a lot of walks per day, maybe three to four walks. You know, I average maybe 13 to 15,000 steps per day. I train for two to three hours every single day. I'm very energetic. I talk with my hands. You know, I sing to songs. I like to dance. Like I like to, I like to Dude, move my you, body. Why do you dance? Is that a joke, man? <laughs> dancing all the time um but i just i like to move my body i don't really like being i don't i like i do daily yoga so like i'm certainly not a couch potato you know i i love to move i love to Mm. expend and also remember we don't have office desk jobs either we mm. we don't yeah yeah exactly we're always moving you know so and you know usually when we record these podcasts we're standing up so 
that's the thing. Uh, I just like, I'm, I'm not going to say that, oh my God, I can eat so much food, right? And just lay on my back and then, you know, do a training session like once per day or something, right? Like I'm using my body. So I require that much energy because I'm burning energy and I'm never going to try to convince someone otherwise. And generally that's the thing, you know, generally if people, it's always going to be different, but generally if you do want to consume more calories, most of the time, you just have to be a more active individual. Like, mm. <laughs> like it is more complicated obviously than calories in versus calories out, but that still is a huge component of energy balance. Right? So yeah, I know. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's the end of that one. That's the end of that one. All right, guys. So last question of the day, which we always finish on one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what did you learn this week? So Tara and I are actually doing some research for potentially another friend for Sam because we're looking after uh, Tara's brother's dog currently and he'll be moving on soon. So uh, we know that Sam loves his company. So makes sense to get another dog <laughs> yeah oh my god i feel like we're in the position where you know when people have a like a baby right and then they've only had their baby for a few months and they're like i want another baby and they start going baby crazy we're like going dog crazy so we're already thinking we've only had sam for over four months so we're like we want another one <laughs> yeah but we're not rushing into it so yeah i was just doing some research on breeds that were unique and that i thought we would like and we'd we, we could get another border collie, but we want to get a different breed. And we actually discovered a breed that is actually perfect and I'd never even heard of before. So it's called a Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever. And yeah, it's, um, it's basically like a mini Labrador. So it's about the size of a border collie, but it looks almost exactly like a very goldenish red Labrador, uh, golden retriever, sorry, not a Labrador. Yeah, they're beautiful. And they're clearly a Canadian dog because they're a Nova Scotia <laughs> duck trolling retreat, duck tolling or duck trolling? Tolling. Tolling. Yeah. Is that an accent? How do you spell that? T-O-L-L-E-N. Tolling. Okay. Uh, but they're clearly Canadian dog because Nova Scotia is a province in Canada. And Canada, you know, uh, for example, you know, I grew up with my dad doing a lot of hunting and we did a lot of duck hunting uh, in as well as like bear hunting, moose hunting, a whole bunch of different, you know, wildlife hunting, right? And uh, we had a black Labrador. Uh, his name was Ragnar. Uh, king of the Vikings and he was our duck dog you know so we would take him out into the field with us and when dad would shoot the ducks you know Ragnar would run out and retrieve the ducks so this is interesting uh it's it's certainly a Canadian dog so they're but beautiful we won't be doing duck hunting. no we won't be doing duck hunting we will be playing a lot of fetch in the park though <laughs> yep fetching balls that are not ducks no <laughs> but what did you learn this week so this week, uh, what I learned is how to actually use the 4K video on my iPhone because I bought the iPhone, it's an iPhone XR, is that right? I think so. It's iPhone XR, iPhone XS, I'm not really sure. Um, anyway, last year in February, my really nice like Lumix camera actually got stolen. The camera that I take all of my professional photos, you know, and professional videos on and stuff for Instagram content. Someone broke into my share house and stole it. What a freaking jerk. 
But anyway, uh, what I decided to do is I decided to buy this iPhone, which apparently had the 4K video, right? Um, but the thing is now it is May the following year. So it's been almost a year and a half. And it was only this week that I realized what the heck? The video hasn't even been on 4K this whole time. So it's actually like I actually had to go into the settings, into the camera and video settings to actually select 4K video. It was on some other lower quality video this entire flipping time. So now I'm finally taking 4K videos and boy, can you see the difference? Boy. It looks amazing, but I'm like, how the heck? Anyway, that's what I learned this week, how to actually access the 4K video on my iPhone, which is one of the reasons why I bought it. So, mm. hey, takes your time, but uh, found it in the end. <laughs> All right, so yeah, Jack, end of episode 73. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to repost it on your story. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.